Welcome to Anchor Point, where we believe that the next 30 minutes could change your life forever. So join us to consider the greatest message ever heard, the good news of the gospel, as well as sound scriptural teaching for believers, all based on the Word of God, the anchor for our souls. Many people love to read the Psalms in the Old Testament of the Bible for comfort and for solace when facing grief and the trials of life. And certainly the Psalms are filled with uplifting praise, and we would encourage you to read them. But would you be surprised to know that the Bible's teaching about sin and judgment is also found there? It is not only in the New Testament's proclamation of the gospel that we hear about man's need and God's remedy. Today, we will be looking at the six short verses of Psalm 53 and find there seven important truths about the subject of sin and God's attitude toward it. It will not be a pretty picture of mankind, my friend, but it's an important one to face up to if we're ever going to have our sins forgiven. Evangelist Mr. Michael Penfold considers these seven aspects of sin but then he goes on to explain how God has dealt with the sin problem for us. Yes, the wonderful gospel message can also be found in the book of Psalms, and we hope that you will take in the truths about sin that God would have you to know, and that you will accept the gracious way of salvation that he offers you. Seven truths about sin. Seven truths about sin from Psalm 53. Verse 1, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. Corrupt are they. These fools, the Bible says they're corrupt. They have done abominable iniquity. There is none that doeth good. God looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand, that did seek God. Every one of them is gone back. They are altogether become filthy. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Have the workers of iniquity no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread? They have not called upon God. There were they, in great fear, where no fear was. For God has scattered the bones of him that encampeth against thee. Thou hast put them to shame, because God hath despised them. Oh, that the salvation of Israel will come out of Zion. When God bringeth back the captivity of his people, Jacob shall rejoice, and Israel shall be glad. Now may God bless that passage of scripture to our hearts. I want to speak first of all of the fact of sin. The fact of sin. Here it is in verse 1. Corrupt are they. The Bible does not set out to flatter humanity. It sets out to tell the truth. And the truth is that you as a child of Adam and Eve are corrupt by nature. It's very important to understand. A lot of people come into meetings like this and when the preacher starts talking about sin, they think about stealing or cheating. They think in terms of things that they have done. They are sins. They will be punished in hell. But God says in his word that you are by nature a sinner. So sin is not simply what you've done. 
Sin is what you are. It doesn't say they have done corrupt things. It says, corrupt are they. Say, why is that? How can you say such a thing? The Bible explains it quite clearly. It tells us that in the beginning, when Adam and Eve sinned, by their sin, the entire human family that they would produce was constituted and set down as sinners before God. The Bible says that in Romans chapter 5. By one man's disobedience, all were made sinners. You will never be saved if you reject that truth. You must take your place as a sinner before God. That is what repentance is. Repentance isn't you going through some kind of a protracted agony, trying to remember all the sins that you've done and confessing them. And basically, repentance is agreeing with God that you are what you are, a sinner before him. It's an attitude that takes a humble position before a holy God. God is holy. I am unholy. I am corrupt. That is why from your very first years, you went the wrong way. Every English school child grows some cress. I don't know if you even know what cress is, but we used to, we used to grow these little uh, green plants and Every single time you put one of those seeds in one of those little trays and put it out in the, on the windowsill and pour a bit of water on every single time the roots go down and the shoots come up. Never the other way around. Always the roots go down. Always the shoots come up. Why? That's in the nature of what that seed is. It would never do anything else. It always does that. It's what that seed does by nature. Now you do certain things by nature. There's something within you that just naturally doesn't want to submit to the authority. All of us, like sheep, the Bible says, have gone astray. We have turned everyone, Adam and Eve to start with, and all of us since then, we have turned to our own way. That's what sin is. It's you going your own way. That's why when God calls people to repent, he says, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked give up smoking? No. Let the wicked stop drinking? No. Oh, you say, can I drink and smoke and still be a Christian? No, no, God is going right to the root of the problem. You see, you could give up smoking and drinking and still go to hell. God goes right to the root of the problem and says, if you want to be saved, let the wicked forsake his own way. That'll cure everything. Let the wicked abandon all attachment to what they want to do in rebellion against God and admit in accordance with Psalm 53 verse 1, I am corrupt. A lady got saved in our hometown in September. She's a university lecturer, a very intelligent person. She'd been coming to meetings for two years. If you'd have said to her, are you a sinner? Yes, yes, I'm a sinner. She would have given mental assent to the fact of being a sinner. But she had never come to where Psalm 53 verse 1 brings her. That she by nature was a corrupt sinner. And by a remarkable series of events, she met up with someone that she'd known from childhood in China. And he said, you're just like me. Your problem is self-righteousness. And he pointed at a Romans chapter 10. People who are busy establishing the fact that yes, they've done a few bad things, but basically they're good people. They're righteous. She said to me, I found out my problem was this. I was just self-righteous. Maybe there's someone here and you come to gospel meetings every week. But maybe you just haven't come as far as it is in this verse here to really admit you're just as bad as the boys in the street. The drug addict that you know that lives on the corner there. There's no difference 
You are in need of salvation because you are corrupt by nature. There is sin in you. But there's more than sin in you. Because when you get into the next expression in verse 1, you find there's sin on you. Not only the fact of sin, but now we have the fruit of sin. This is my second point. The fruit of sin. Corrupt are they and... Oh, they're not only corrupt by nature. And they have done abominable iniquity. Psychology, I'm led to believe, is the study of why people do what they do. The Bible has a very simple answer to that, and I don't mean to be uh, humorous. We do what we do because we are what we are. We're sinners by nature. They are corrupt, and as a result, they have done iniquity. You did not become a sinner the first time you committed a sin. It's the other way around. You committed that sin, that first sin. You know why you did it? Because you are a sinner. There is sin in you by nature, but there's sin on you. Sin on your back, as it were, like a burden. Have you ever felt the burden of sin? Back where I come from, there was a, a little man years ago. You can go and see his, his grave in a place called Bunhill Fields in London. Very small body he has, about four foot tall he was. His name was John Bunyan. He got thrown in jail for preaching the gospel. And in that jail, he wrote a book called Pilgrim's Progress. Tells a story of a man who's living in the city of destruction. That's where you live. You live in a condemned world and you're on your way to hell and you need to be saved. And this man's living in the city of destruction. And he starts reading this book here, the Bible. And as he reads this book and, and he reads verses like this, corrupt are they, they've done abominable iniquity. All of a sudden he notices a burden on his back. Nobody else seems to have this burden, only him. He feels the weight of his, have you ever felt the weight of your sin? The second most wonderful discovery you'll ever make is to discover that you're lost. Really lost. Hopelessly lost. You say, well, if I'd had a different upbringing and uh, if I'd have come from where you come from and, and so on, then, then, then I wouldn't be in such a mess. No, no. What does it say in verse 1? The fool has said in his heart. The fact of sin, the fruit of sin, what does verse 1 tell us? The fountain of sin. Where does this sin come from? It comes from the heart. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. Not your upbringing. Not your environment. Not your lack of education. That's why Washington will never solve the world's problems. That's why psychology, by avoiding the issue of sin and denying that it exists, will never solve the world's problems. The problem is the problem of the heart. Your heart is corrupt. And it is the fountain of sin. You know, in the days of the Lord Jesus, when he was here on earth, there were some people called Pharisees and Sadducees. Very religious, very fastidious, very uh, dedicated, very interested in religious rituals and hand-washing. One day they complained to the Lord Jesus about your disciples. They haven't washed their hands and they're eating and now they're ceremonially unclean. And the Lord says to them, it's not what goes into your mouth that makes you unclean. It may give you a few germs, but it doesn't make you spiritually unclean. It's what comes out of the mouth. And he further goes on to explain that, that what comes out of the mouth actually comes out of the heart. For out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things that defile a man. 
We're not offering in the gospel, put a new coat on an old sinner. The gospel is offering to put a new man in the old coat. To take you as you are. To let you see in the words of scripture that you are corrupt and hopelessly bankrupt in your sin. And to bring you to the point where God can offer you salvation. But it gets worse. Because when we come down to verse 3, we read, They are altogether become filthy. The fact of sin, the fruit of sin, the fountain of sin, here we have the filthiness of sin. I remember having gospel meetings some years ago. It was a long time ago, actually. It must be 25 years ago. There's a lady coming. She used to walk across from her house to this piece of waste ground where we had the tent put up. And that particular night, I mentioned in preaching something which the Lord Jesus spoke about to these same religious people, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he talked about how they were doing the washing up, washing the dishes. And, and he said, your approach to getting to heaven, your approach to being saved, is like taking a cup that's dirty and just washing the outside and putting it in the cupboard, saying, that's, that's, I've done the dishes. But the inside is still dirty and horrible and filthy. And the Lord Jesus says, that's, that's what religion can do. It just makes the outside look good. It's an offense to heaven. You know, the modern gospel says, I'm empty, fill me. You know what the Bible gospel says? I'm filthy, cleanse me. She went home and her window was just, her uh, kitchen window was just facing out onto the street. So she lived in a poor district of the town, just a little box of a house. And we were walking home from the gospel meeting to the car, and I passed her kitchen window. It was just slightly open. She was doing the dishes. I said, well, what did you think of the meeting tonight? And she looked to this cup in her hand, which was in the dishwasher, and she said, I'm thinking about my sins. I'm thinking about my sins. Have you ever thought about your sins? Have you ever spent 10 minutes thinking about your sins? The filthiness of sin. But it's not only filthy. When you go back up to verse 1, we find the folly of sin. The utter foolishness of it. These people who are rejecting God and, and are corrupt, the Bible calls them fools. The absolute madness of going on in sin. Have you ever thought of the real folly of it? To sink down to hell for something as foolish as sin. And God in this gospel reading is seeking by his mercy and grace to say, stop, it's madness, it's foolish. Why go on without the Savior in the darkness and corruption of sin? There used to be a comedian in Great Britain, very, very funny man apparently, it was long before my time. He used to have a half an hour show on television back in the days of black and white television. And millions of people used to watch this show. It was a, an unmissable weekly show in the 1950s. And even the people that were running fish and chip shops, they had no customers in that half an hour because everybody was glued to this famous comedian. He could have the whole nation in stitches. He just had the world at his fingertips. And then he started drinking. And his life started going down and down in a spiral. And he would appear on these programs sometimes, inebriated with drink. And eventually, they found his dead body. He had taken a large overdose of barbiturate tablets and a bottle of vodka. 
He left a suicide note. True happiness is impossible to obtain. This man who had had the whole nation rocking with laughter is now in eternity. How foolish is that? Oh, the folly of sin. The fool that lives without salvation. There's a day of reckoning coming. We read of that in verse 5. And this is my sixth point. The fear that attends sin. Not just the folly of sin, but the fear that attends sin. Then were they in great fear. When we read in the New Testament of the judgment of God falling on this world, it tells us of a day when the great men, the chief men, the chief captains, you're thinking now of your presidents and your ambassadors and your generals, the leading lights of this world, the men before whom we bow and scrape, the great and the good, they, they will call upon the rocks to fall on them and and hide them from the face of him that sits on the throne. Have you ever thought of that day? When you who are not saved, you who are lost in sin, who've gone on without the Savior, will face the judgment of God, then you will be in great fear. When you turn from that face of the one who sits on that great white throne, and your face is turned to that lake that burns with fire, then you will be in great fear. Why? Because sin attends with great fear. But you know, when you come to the last verse of of uh, Psalm 53. Everything turns bright and the smile comes on the face of the psalmist and he says these lovely words, Oh, that the salvation of Israel will come out of Zion. Would you like to have salvation? I remember sitting in meetings and longing for salvation. I used to imagine myself outside the door and seeking to get in and not being able. But there came a moment sitting in the gospel meeting when the salvation came to me. You say, how did you get it? I would love to get it. Tell me. Tell me how. Did you pray something? No. Did you say something? No. Did you believe hard enough? I wouldn't be thinking about believing. Did you see a light? No, I didn't see any light. Well, what happened? Well, it was very simple. As I sat in that meeting, and the preacher was preaching, and I have to say, in fairness, he, he, was, he wasn't a great preacher. I don't think he ever preached before, and I don't think he ever preached after. It was just one of those nights, and there he was, and I haven't seen him since. As I sat in that meeting, the thought came to me like this. Why did Jesus die on the cross? You know, if you'd have said to me at the Sunday school, why did Jesus die on the cross? I would have shot my hand up, and I said, die for our sins. But you know, that night, as I thought, why did Jesus die on the cross? It was as if I didn't know. Do you really know why Jesus died on the cross? And as I thought, why couldn't God just save me? Why the cross? Why couldn't God just say, Michael, I'm going to forgive you and you can come? Why the cross? And at that moment, the preacher said this. When Jesus died on the cross, he didn't die for his own sins because he didn't have any sins. Now, you might think I'm exceedingly stupid, but I had never, ever thought of that before. People die on the cross because they are sinners. They're criminals. That's why they're on the cross. Here's a man. He's on the cross, but he hasn't done any sin. Jesus died on the cross, not for his own sins, because he hadn't done any sins. And then in the simplest, simplest way, the preacher said this. He died for your sins. And I don't really know how to explain what happened at that moment in time. But it was just like, it just dawned on me. That's it. Oh, all this struggle, all this trying to believe, all this trying to work up 
He died for me. Oh, the salvation that I got that moment, I've still got it. And it's not really my salvation. It's his salvation. He gave it to me. When my dad died, what are we going to put on his grave? On his tombstone? I said to the family, I tell you, this is my suggestion. Let's put on there a, a little verse that he used to quote when he preached the gospel. And they agreed. And this is what's on his gravestone in Pinglefield in the cemetery in Bicester. In peace, let me resign my breath. Thy salvation see. My sins deserve eternal death. But Jesus died for me. Well, there you have it, my friend. God has already stepped in and solved the great problem of sin for us. Do we deserve it? Absolutely not. We deserve quite the opposite. But God in His grace has provided a means for us to be brought back to Himself. No wonder the psalmist can go on to write songs of praise to God for His goodness to the children of men. Face your sin today. We're all in the same boat. We're all sinners who need our sins forgiven. And like the multitudes before you, look to Christ who bled and died on the cross to bring sinners back to God. If this or any of our Bible messages here at Anchor Point has made you aware of God's interest in you, or if you'd like some literature or a visit that would help you to understand these important truths, why don't you drop us a line at email at anchorpointradio.com. We'd love to hear from you. We're glad that you were able to join us at Anchor Point today. Anchor Point is sponsored by Christians who are meeting in various gospel halls. Each of these Christian assemblies holds gospel services as well as regular prayer and Bible studies throughout the week. No collection is ever taken, and a very warm welcome awaits you. And if you've been challenged by today's message, would like to know more about the truth of the gospel, or of gathering under the name of our Lord Jesus Christ following New Testament principles, please feel free to check out our website at anchorpointradio.com. There you will find more information, as well as the location, programs, and meeting schedules for the Gospel Hall nearest you. My name is John Sharp, and thank you once again for listening. And we invite you to join us again next week at the same time for Anchor Point, where we believe that in times like these, you need a Savior. And in times like these, you need an anchor. <laughs>